We sing as the church, we will glorify Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, the Lamb of God. He is himself, I am. We will glorify him. And if that's to be the case, if we are to be those who glorify Christ, then we need to go to his word and trust in the spirit to cause that word to flourish in our lives. So we turn to the word of God now. This morning, turning to the book of the Psalms, we've been making our way through 2 Samuel these days. We've been making our way through 1 and 2 Samuel for months now. We've been following the unfolding narrative of David, son of Jesse, for months now. We've seen David emerge. We've seen him rise. We have seen him hunted. We have seen him tested. We have seen him shine. We have seen him fall. We've seen him rise again after falling. We've seen all of that and more as we followed the unfolding story of David, son of Jesse. What we've seen most recently is David chastised by God for his sin. David sinned against Uriah the Hittite. David ruined that man's household leading to that man's death. Well, then, now David finds that the waves that he set in motion are coming back now to crash down upon his own household. There's been violence among his children. There's been revenge among his children in the wake of that violence. And now there's been rebellion as well. David's own son, Absalom, has risen up in rebellion against him. Absalom won the hearts of the people, and David knew, David understood, that that meant he had to leave town. It was time to flee Jerusalem. That's what we saw last week, David on the run again. Remember this last week from 2 Samuel 15. It says this, A messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So that was last week. We looked at 2 Samuel chapters 15 and 16. Absalom rising up in rebellion against his father. David on the run from his own son. And so remember, we focused last week on the fact that David continued to walk with God in suffering even when he knew that his suffering was a matter of God chastising him for his sin. David might have thought, well, I'm being chastised now. Clearly, this is not a time to walk with God. God doesn't want anything to do with me, therefore I won't have anything to do with him. David, thankfully, faithfully, did not reason that way. David knew better. David knew that this was precisely a time for him to be trusting in God and walking with God. And so he did. So it was a good lesson for us to learn last week about what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart as David was. Among other things, it means that you keep walking with God even when at, a t- at a time when God is laying you low because of your sin. And that brings us to our sermon passage today. 
This week we're going to do what we've done many times before as we've been making our way through First and Second Samuel. We're going to press pause on Second Samuel and we're going to turn to the Psalms. This week we're going to look at a psalm that David wrote when all of this was happening. We've seen this before. It sheds valuable light on the history that we're reading to look over at the poetry that David wrote when he was living through it. Because that poetry, those psalms, they help us to understand more fully what was really going on and what it felt like and what it sounded like, if we can put it that way, to hear David crying out to God in the midst of what he was going through. So this week it's Psalm 3 because that psalm has the heading, A Psalm of David When He Fled from Absalom His Son. So this is the psalm. This is the poem that emerged from those dark and fearful days. So last week we were able to say that David continued to walk with God, continued to trust in God because of evidence that we got in 2 Samuel last week. Well, this week we can say the same thing. David continued to trust in God, and here's yet another piece of evidence, the way he prayed the way he he poured out his soul to God while all of this was going on. Further evidence that David trusted in God. So listen now to the word of God, Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, for all of its parts, including 2 Samuel, where we find that history that we've been tracing, the history of David, son of Jesse, with its ups and downs, and some of the downs were very deep valleys. And we thank you as well for the book of the Psalms, for we can turn there as we do this morning and listen to David as he prays to you in the midst of those raging storms down in those deep valleys. We pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice today. 
As the boy Samuel said, so we say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. David wrote a lot of psalms. David wrote so many psalms that in the New Testament, this whole book is referred to in places as David's book, even though he didn't write all 150 of them. David wrote a lot of psalms. But was there ever a moment quite like this one? What kind of poem do you write when your own son has betrayed you? How do you put that into words? What kind of poem do you, do you write? What kind of prayer do you pray when your own son has betrayed you and forced you to flee for your life? David's not writing about somebody else's experience. He's writing about his own. And he's not writing about past experience. He's talking about something that's unfolding right now. And what's unfolding right now is that his own son has turned against him. And has forced him to flee for his life. What do you write then? What do you say? What do you say to God? What would you say to God? If you found yourself betrayed, even threatened, by somebody close to you. To put it even more pointedly. What would you say to God in that circumstance? If you knew that at least to some degree it was your own fault, that you'd had some part in setting the whole mess in motion that was now coming back down to crash upon you. We can say about this psalm what we've said before about other psalms that David wrote. In these circumstances, this is poetry. Let's bear that in mind. This is composed. So it's not necessarily the case. It's unlikely the case that this psalm is from start to finish a verbatim recording of the words that David used when he fell on his knees before God. But still, it is a faithful expression of what was in his heart as he was going through this. And no doubt, the poem does reflect What came out of his heart in words as he spoke to God in prayer? And as we're about to see, what came out of David in his words is that he was a man who clung to the love of God and who experienced the peace of God and who also trusted in the justice of God. And surely for those three alone, he's a model for us. He clung to the love of God, experienced the peace of God, and trusted in the justice of God. That's the kind of man that he was, a man after God's own heart, and it comes through in this prayer. So here's how we'll go about it. First thing we're going to do is just walk through the psalm, notice some things as we go, and then when we've done that, will reflect upon lessons that we can glean from it and take David as the example that he is. So first of all, let's, let's walk through the psalm. Let's see what's here. And we can start with the heading. We've already noticed it. 
a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And just those last two words are remarkable. His son. Back in 1 Samuel, there was that long stretch when David was on the run from Saul. And there were those moments when he had to flee from fellow Israelites who were determined to hand him over. And there were those moments when he had to flee from the Philistines because he was afraid they were on to him. So we remember all of that. Way back in 1 Samuel, there was that long stretch when it felt like David was on the run from practically everybody. And to some degree, we were able to make sense of that. But now it's his son. How do you make sense of that? It's his own flesh and blood. It's somebody from his own flesh and blood, and he's got to flee from him. David was instrumental in giving him life. Probably held him in his arms. And he was a tiny, helpless baby. And now Absalom, his son, wants to repay life with death. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So what does he write? How does the psalm begin? Look at verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. In other words, it's not just Absalom that he's fleeing from. It was Absalom who orchestrated this plan. It was Absalom who devised this rebellion. But that's just it. The plan worked. The rebellion took hold. What did Absalom want to gain? He wanted to gain the hearts of many And it happened. Many joined him. Remember, that's when David knew it was time to go. A messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. That's when David knew it was time to go. It's not just that Absalom devised this rebellion and had a go at it. It's also that the rebellion had taken hold. We're not told here or in 2 Samuel, we're not told exactly how sweeping, how expansive the rebellion became throughout Israel, but there were enough of them. There were plenty of them who sided with Absalom's cause. So that David can say here, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. Verse 1. And then to make matters worse, look at verse 2. Verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. You talk about kicking a man when he's down. You talk about piling on. I mean, it's one thing to have to flee for your life. It's even worse when you've got to flee for your life from your very own son. But then to have people say about you, even God won't help him now. And not only that, but to have people say that about you when you're a man after God's own heart. In effect, people are saying about him, David may be a man after God's own heart, but God's not after his. 
God's not invested in David's cause. Not anymore. David's not going to ride to David's rescue. Not this time. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now for people to be saying that about him, they're not necessarily talking about personal spiritual salvation. Things like forgiveness and heaven and eternal life and all of that. It could be that they just mean God's not going to save him from Absalom. But that doesn't diminish this. And what it must have been like for David to hear that people were saying this. This isn't just about earthly circumstances and military outcomes. For people to be saying that about David, they're, they're basically saying, God's not for you. Not right now. Not in this. God's not for you. And and make no mistake, that hurts. That shakes you, even if deep down you know better. And David did. That's why he could pray a prayer like this. That's why he could write a psalm like this. David knew better. Still, it is such a jarring thing to hear. Especially if You know that your suffering is the direct result of your own sin, and David was, so that you might be tempted to harbor those doubts that God's not for me now. Well, it hurts then. It it shakes you then to hear people say that. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So what does David do? How does he respond to that? How does he respond to knowing that people are saying that about him? Well, what he does is go back to God's word. He returns to God's truth. He goes back to the things that he knows deep down as an answer to the things that people are saying about him. And that's what you see in verse 3. Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. In other words, David knew that God was for him in spite of what all those people around him were saying. David knew that God loved him at the same time that he knew that it was God himself who was bringing upon David the bitter consequences of his sin. And David knew that, knew that God was still for him, in part because he could look back and remember how God had shown himself to be for him in the past. David remembered. And that comes out in verse 4. Look at verse 4. He remembered. He said, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me, From his holy hill, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David remembered. David could look back and see a time when he prayed. He prayed to God, and the God whose presence was symbolized by that temple, in that city, on that mountain, God answered him. God had shown him favor. David remembered And then notice verse 5. 
He didn't just remember that God had been for him in the past. He also remembered the personal peace that he was able to experience as a result of that. David remembered that he'd been able to sleep. Look at verse 5. He says, I laid down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. So he remembers that. And that, that personal peace that he remembers, he'd been able to sleep. That's what makes him confident now. Because he goes from that memory in verse 5 to confidence in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. He's got that kind of confidence now because of the memories that he can draw upon of God's favor in the past. And because he's confident like that, well, then he can pray as he does in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. So... David is writing this, he's saying this at a time while the storm is still raging. He remembers that God had shown him favor in the past. Well, we come back to the present and he needs that favor now. Many are saying of him, there's no salvation. David knows better. And he says, save me. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David knows God. And what that means is that David knows not only that God is for him, but also that God is against his enemies. And he will deal justly with them. God is faithful. And he is just. And his justice will be exhibited. It will be vindicated. And he concludes then, verse 8, with this note of confidence again. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So that's what David has to say in this psalm. That's, That's the ground that he covers. It's a mix of lamentation and memory and confidence and petition. And by the way, isn't that exactly what the Christian life is like? It's all of that and more. It's that kind of mix of lamentation, memory, confidence, petition. No wonder a psalm like this, written so long ago under very different circumstances, still resonates with us. Because there's so much in here that we all know very well in our own Christian lives. So that's what David has to say in this psalm. Now that we've walked through it, let's take a step back, reflect upon it. What are some things that we can take from it? What are some lessons that we can learn? And I want to point out three of them. The first of them is this. Christian, God is for you. To read this psalm, to reflect upon this psalm is an opportunity for you to be reminded of the truth that God is for you. 
More specifically, God is for you in spite of all of the voices in your life that might be saying otherwise. And there are those voices. In David's case, there were people who were actually coming out and saying it. Saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So in David's case, there were people who were, who were saying it out loud. Christian, in your case, when you're suffering in some way, when you're struggling and maybe mightily, and especially when you're suffering in some way that's the result of your own sin, well, it could be simply the voice, the whisper of your own internal doubts that you're hearing. Sometimes that whisper is the loudest voice, isn't it? God's not for me. I failed him. I brought this upon myself. I drove God from me and he's gone. Or it could be that people in your life who do not share your Christian faith are saying in so many words that you're a fool to be holding on to yours. That's certainly where the world is coming from. In any case, those are the voices that the evil one wants you to be tuning into, though you cannot see him and hear him. The flesh, the world, the devil, the question is, will you tune into those voices? Will you let those voices prevail? The way to make sure that they don't is to tune in to what God has said in his word. Like Psalm 3, it's a place you can go, knowing what we know about what David was going through when he prayed like this. Or you can go to Romans 8. Romans 8 is always a very good place to go. Romans 8, Paul says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. That's Romans 8. That's a great place to go to be reminded that God is for you. Paul brings out there that the cross is the clearest proof that God is for you. Just as David looked back and remembered the favor of God in the past that he'd known, we do too. And we don't just look back on God's favor that we've known in our own lifetimes. We look all the way back to the cross. And we conclude from it, perhaps with tears in our eyes, God is for us. Or you can go to Hebrews 13, also a good place to go. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, says this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Think about that. Against the backdrop of, of David and what he was suffering at the hands of man, at the hands of a man who was his son. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And we can underline never in there. I will never leave you. And never includes those times when God himself is chastising you for your sin. I will never Leave you 
nor forsake you. I am for you. That's what God has said. Psalm 3, Romans 8, Hebrews 13. We can keep going. No matter what the world, the flesh, and the devil are saying. The voices that they want you to hear. That's what God has said. Tune into that. Lean into that. Memorize that if you have to. Verses like those. That's the power of Scripture in our lives. Not too long ago, Philip got some pretty sweet noise-canceling headphones. And the technology is remarkable. Advanced noise-canceling technology doesn't just block out the noises that you don't want to hear. It's better than that. It's more sophisticated than that. It's not just defensive. It's also offensive. The technology isn't just passive. It's also active. It actually takes the noises around you that you don't want to hear and it actively counters them with inverse sound waves that have the effect of neutralizing those noises. It's active. It's offensive. Christian, let Scripture be that and do that in your life. You be active. Go on offense. Don't just cover your ears and try to block stuff out. No, be active. You go to Scripture. And tune into the scripture truth that God is for you. That won't automatically eliminate the noise of all of those doubts and discouragements. The noise around you and perhaps even within you. But by God's grace, it will actively neutralize that noise. So that you're better able to tune it out. And instead, you will be hearing clearly the most beautiful song. Which is the music of God's love. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that's the first. Christian, God is for you. Here's the second. God gives sleep. God gives sleep. I was saying before when we got started that this psalm touches a nerve with us. It resonates with us. This is one of the reasons why. What David says in verse 5. He says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. There's just something about sleep. It's strange, isn't it? This one part of our lives that's the most passive part of our lives. And yet... It is such a huge part of our lives when it comes to health and strength and confidence and well-being. We're entirely passive in it. We don't even remember it. And yet it's, it's huge. In our house, it's fairly common that it's something we ask one another in the morning. Maybe the first words, how'd you sleep? It's a common question. How to sleep. It's a natural morning reading. Why? Because we all know that sleep matters that much for how you face the day. And that comes out in Scripture as well. Not just here in Psalm 3. In verse 5. But the very next Psalm. 
Psalm 4. He says it again. This is Psalm 4. He says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's Psalm 4, verse 8. That's another one of those verses that just in reading it, you almost feel your whole body sigh. Because you know what a blessing that is. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. If you flip over to Proverbs 3, the wise man says this. He says, if you get wisdom, chapter 3 in Proverbs, then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Ah. Feels good just to read it. Proverbs 3. Psalm 127 Helps us to understand more fully where the sleep comes from. It comes from God as a gift from God. Listen to Psalm 127, verse 2. It says this, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Sleep is God's gift to give. And we, we can't bring it about that we... That we create it for ourselves by frantic activity. In fact, if anything, that's the kind of thing that keeps you up at night. Here's one more. Psalm 121. It says this. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. That's why... You can, you can lie down in peace and close your eyes because you know that God won't close his and fall asleep and lose sight of you. Psalm 121. All that to say, this is, this is a Bible theme that comes up now and then, and it's here in Psalm 3, our psalm today. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. The point is this. In knowing God, in knowing that God is for us. While we're living in a threatening world, there is peace that enables us to rest. In knowing that God is for us, while we're living in a threatening world, there is a peace that makes for rest. And as soon as I say that, I want to get clear on this. Lest we go astray. It's certainly true. Knowing that God is for us. There's peace that makes for rest. But that does not mean. That there's necessarily something wrong with you. Something wrong with your faith. If you find that you have a sleepless night. A fitful night. Because of worries that are weighing on you. It happens. It happens to faithful Christians. And it doesn't necessarily happen because of faithlessness. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he suffered sleepless nights. And he says at the end of that passage that anxiety for the church has weighed on him constantly. And you can imagine that anxiety, that godly care at times, keeping him up so that he prayed through the night. Jesus himself sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sometimes our trials and anxieties weigh on us like that. 
And sometimes those trials and anxieties get all mixed up with things that are going on with our bodies at the time. Like a throbbing pain. Or medicinal side effects. Or jet lag. And so you find yourself staring at the ceiling, eyes wide open, at 2.30 a.m. That doesn't mean that there's necessarily something wrong with you or wrong with your faith. Just remember, the physical rest of sleep, as we've already seen, that's always God's to give. In his time and in his way, and from one night to the next, it may be his time and way, it may be his providence, to allow you some turmoil of body and mind that keeps you up. But listen, even when that's true, even when that's happening, it's still the case that the gospel has set us free as Christians from a whole gamut of soul-wrenching turmoil that keeps the world up at night and for which they have no remedy. Because at the end of the day, and I mean literally at the end of the day, When they go to bed, the world is in peace with God. And closing your eyes, no matter how tight you close them, cannot change that. But Christian, you are. You are at peace with God. And in fact, when you're wide awake, 2.30 a.m., staring at the ceiling... That's one of the truths that you can bring to mind and thank God for. You can remind yourself that you're at peace with him and that there's peace of soul in knowing that and that he'll enable you to close your eyes and drift off in due time, in his time. In a few minutes, we're going to sing together the hymn, All Praise to Thee, My God, This Night. And one of the things we're going to sing together is this, in that hymn, When in the night I sleepless lie, my soul with heavenly thoughts supply. And is it not one of those heavenly thoughts to know that he's for us and that he's not going to sleep on us? May it be so. God gives sleep. So Christian, God is for you. That was the first. God gives sleep. That was the second briefly. Now here's the third and final, which is that God is just. This last one is tough, but it's important. Surely it was tough for David to reflect upon this when it's his own son who has proven, at least for a time, to be his enemy. But David knew that in the end, God would deal justly with his enemies who never repented of their opposition. Christian, you can know the same thing. God will take care of justice in the end. You don't have to. You shouldn't even try to be the agent of ultimate justice. That's why Paul says what he says in Romans 12. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Romans 12. When somebody turns on you, someone who was close to you, someone you should have been able to trust, that's one of those circumstances, and maybe you know this from your own experience, that's one of those circumstances when the fires of vengeance can really be fueled 
Remember your Savior in those moments. Remember Jesus, who was betrayed by one of his own with a kiss. But what does Peter say about Jesus? How did Jesus respond? 1 Peter 2. Peter says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christian, that's your Savior. You follow him, so let us be like him. And by the grace of God, we shall. Let's pray to Father, we would fix our eyes on Christ. We thank you for him, for the example that he was and is for his grace at work in our lives. We rest today in the knowledge that you are for us. We thank you for the good gift of sleep that you give. More profoundly than the gift of physical sleep, we thank you for the gift of knowing that we are at peace with you and you shall never sleep on us. We would rest in this today, in your steadfastness, in your justice, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.